0: Good evening Undone. It's great to be able to speak to you tonight. Uh, I'm speaking to you from my living room as you can probably tell. Uh, My isolation beard is coming in nicely. Uh, But I know that when I was first asked to do this message that I did not think I would be doing it from my couch. Um, Things have changed a lot since then. Uh, So I guess I ask for your patience and understanding as I kind of get used to this new way of doing things. Uh, I'm not used to talking to a camera like this. It feels a little bit awkward. It feels a little bit weird. Um, So yeah, I just ask for your understanding as I kind of adapt to the new format as we all are um, in this current season. Um, But I'm still really excited to be able to speak to you in this series, A Doubter's Guide to the Bible. We started this series at the beginning of the year and then we took a little bit of a break and we explored some other topics. Um, And then Anna, she kicked the series off again last week Uh, by looking at the law of Moses and how that kind of applies today and the relevance that it still has and we're going to be continuing on in that story by looking at Joshua and Joshua was the leader who took over from Moses after Moses' death and then it was his job to then lead the Israelites into the land in which God had promised to give them generations before and in doing that, we're going to be tackling the kind of the topic of the wrath of God and exploring that. And I want you to know that that is not one that I would pick for myself. That is not one that I would put my hand up and volunteer for. Um, it was the one that was given to me. So I'm going to do my best to try and unpack that. But the reason it's not one I would volunteer to do is because I think it's it's a big topic. And theologically, there's a lot of things going on. Um, it can get quite complex. So... I'm going to do my best um, tonight to maybe give you some new understanding around this idea. Um, But I want you to know I'm a learner uh, on this subject as well. And I'll do my best to bring uh, what I've learned from God's word. And hopefully there's something new for you here as well tonight. Um, But really what we're going to be looking at is the story of Jericho. And this is a really famous story because the land in which God had promised to the Israelites, unfortunately for them, it wasn't empty. There was uh, another nation occupying this land, the the people of Canaan, and they would have to drive out these people if they wanted this land for themselves. So this first uh, battle in this conquest of the Canaanite people is the Battle of Jericho, a really famous story where they marched around the walls and on the seventh time the walls came crumbling down. And Often I think we look at this story from a positive context. So we see God's faithfulness in delivering his promises to his people. And I think because of this positive spin that we so often look at stories like this with, we can miss the intensity of what's actually happening here. The fact that God is in essence commanding his people to go and wipe out an entire other group of people and we read that in Joshua it says when the trumpet sounded the army shouted and at the sound of the trumpet when the men gave a loud shout the wall collapsed so everyone charged straight in and they took the city now they devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it men and women young and old cattle sheep and donkeys now, that's, that's hard to kind of wrap our head around. And I think a lot of people struggle with this. This idea of a God who is loving and kind and compassionate, and yet a God who would allow this kind of thing to take place, would seemingly condone this kind of thing taking place. And Richard Dawkins, he articulates this in his book, The God Delusion. He's a famous atheist and he says this, he says, "'The God of the Old Testament is arguably "'the most unpleasant character in all fiction, "'jealous and proud of it, "'a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, "'a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, "'a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal genocidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadiomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Now, if you're anything like me, you would have to go and look up what half of those words even mean. But does he have a point? Is the God that we see in this story a God who is unforgiving, unjust, and in essence, commanding his people to go and commit genocide? I think there's a few more things going on here than that. I don't think it's quite that simple. You see in Deuteronomy, God makes it very clear to the Israelite people, why they get to take hold of this land. This is what he says to them. He says, it's not because you're so good or have such integrity that you're about to occupy their land. The Lord your God will drive out these nations out ahead of you only because of their wickedness and to fulfill the oath he swore to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You must recognize the Lord your God is not giving you this good land because you are good, for you are not, you are a stubborn people. So we see here that God's making it very clear to the Israelites that this has absolutely nothing to do with their own righteousness. It is simply the wickedness of the Canaanite people. And the Israelites here are to be used as an instrument for God to be able to deliver his divine judgment. And when we're talking about the wickedness of the Canaanite people, we're talking about some really extreme practices that had become commonplace in their culture. So things like child sacrifice, where they would burn infants alive in worship to their God. So we're talking about unspeakable wickedness here. And here God is saying, I'm going to deliver my justice to this nation in which is deserving of it. And it's interesting that it puts it like this, because we're talking about a time and a culture where you didn't really need a reason to go and invade someone else's land. If you were more powerful than them and you were able to take what was theirs, you were right to do so. And yet here in this account, we see very clearly that God wasn't allowing his people to conform to that pattern, that way of doing things. But there were specific reasons for why they were allowed to go to battle with the Canaanites. And it was about his divine judgment. Now, I don't think that kind of answers the issue, though. It kind of clarifies the issue. We know it's not just about a land grab. It's not about racial cleansing or genocide. It's about divine justice. But I still think that's a problem. How can we reconcile a God who we know to be a God of love, compassion, kindness with a God of wrath, as we see demonstrated in this chapter? And this is an issue I think a lot of people struggle with. So it's one I want to tackle and kind of explore a little bit here. And I think there's a couple of things that we have to keep in mind when we look at this topic of the wrath of God to gain a full perspective, a full picture on what it means. And the first is this. The first is to understand the love of God is to understand the wrath of God. And this is an interesting one because this is often the biggest issue for people that they can't reconcile God's love with God's wrath. And I think this leads a lot of people to just take the stance that God isn't a judge. He's just no judge. And you hear this in how people speak sometimes where they'll say something like, I just don't believe God would do that. Or I don't believe God could do that. Or God would not allow this to happen. But the reality is, when you make God a God of love, in turn, you create the potential for wrath. And and this is something that we understand with love in any other context. But for some reason, when it comes to God, we think that we can just separate the two. Uh, I'll give you a really simple example. I love my wife. And I don't think I'm a particularly violent person. Um, I will avoid violence at all costs. But if you put me in a situation where someone then tries to harm her, that's all gonna be thrown out the window. That's not really gonna matter, the fact that I'm not a violent person. And I'm gonna do whatever I need to do or can do in that moment. It's not because I'm looking for a fight. You know, I don't have fantasies of murdering people. But that's not where it comes from, it comes from my love for her. And the moment that we say our God is a God of love, he could never have wrath, is the moment that we make God's love cheap and meaningless and we say that it wouldn't use its power to defend. And the reality of our God's love is that it goes beyond just loving each of us immensely but it goes to loving all that is good and all that is just. So naturally it makes a lot of sense that there would be wrath, there would be anger against what is not good, what is not just. And that's what we see playing out in this story of Jericho. We see God's justice, his anger against injustice coming and delivering his divine judgment so does that mean that, that our God is just looking for opportunities to throw out His wrath against all evil, all injustice? Um, I don't think that's, that's the kind of God that we believe in either because there's more to it than that. In the Psalms, we see that it says our God is slow to anger and He is abounding in love. And believe it or not, we actually see that playing out in the story here of Jericho as well, because this wasn't just a momentary decision that God would just deliver his judgment to this nation, but it was actually foretold generations before we're right back to Abraham. God, he said to Abraham, I promise you will have this land. Your descendants will have this land, but they can't have it yet. And the reason he gave for why they couldn't yet have it was he said the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And the Amorites here is referencing the Canaanites. So what we see is that God was fully aware of the evil and the wickedness of this nation. But he's saying, I'm going to allow it to go on for a while. But it will reach a point where I will deliver my divine justice to this deserving nation. And that's what we see playing out in the story of Jericho. And we see that that is actually coming from a place of his love for all that is good, all that is right naturally, we will see His justice served against what is not good, what is not right. So that's the first thing I think we have to understand when we look at the wrath of God. The second thing I think we need to also equally understand is that God's mercy precedes His wrath. God's mercy precedes His wrath. And it's easy to look at a story like the story here In Joshua and just see his wrath and not see his mercy but we actually do see a demonstration of his mercy chapters before and we see this in the story of Rahab so before the Israelite armies came in and invaded Jericho they actually sent some spies ahead of them to scout out the land and this is what happened Joshua he sent two spies and he said go and look over the land especially Jericho So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they've come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they'd come from. And at dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly and you might catch up with them. But she'd taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she'd laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies laid down for the night, she went up to the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and a great fear of you has fallen on us. So that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We've, now, we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to Shion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. And when we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, all who belong to them, that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we'll treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So there's a few things that we see taking place in this story here. What we see is that the Canaanite people were fully aware of who the Israelite God was. And not only just aware, but they believed in him and they believed what he had done for their people. And what we see is there is a clear opportunity for them to turn away from their wickedness and turn to God. And yet there's a refusal to do that. And we see that result in that God's divine judgment is delivered. But we see this opportunity here for mercy, an opportunity to escape that judgment. And we see it in how Rahab's family responded. In how they actually escaped the judgment of God by taking that opportunity of mercy. Taking that opportunity to turn away from wickedness and turn to God. And there's another story in the Old Testament that creates an interesting comparison to this story we read in Joshua. And it's the story of Jonah. Uh, it's interesting because Jonah's most famous for being swallowed by a fish, but his story is actually about something else completely. He was commissioned by God to go to a nation much like the Canaanites and to profess that God's impending judgment was coming because of their wickedness. And this is what the, the story says. It says in uh, Jonah, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give to you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city and it took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going on a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, look at the difference in the reaction of the Ninevites. Now, the Ninevites believed God and a fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on a sackcloth. A sackcloth is a symbol of repentance in the Old Testament. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne. He took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let peoples or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let him give up their evil ways and their violence. And who knows? God may yet relent with compassion and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became very angry. So what we see here is an interesting contrast. Two very similar stories with two very different outcomes. You see, the Ninevites... When they saw that opportunity for mercy, they responded with repentance. They turned away from the evil and wicked practices of their culture and they turned to God. And we see God's reaction to that. It's one of forgiveness, it's one of compassion. And you see, to understand the wrath of God is to understand that before it comes an opportunity for mercy and how we respond to that opportunity for mercy Is not up to God, but that's up to us. And these stories, the story of Canaan and Jericho and the story of the people of Nineveh, many believe that they're not just historic stories, but they're actually examples of God's judgment that is still to come, his judgment against the world as it speaks of in Revelation, the second coming where Jesus will come again and he will pour out his right judgment over this world. And, and that's a heavy thing to try and understand and to think about. And I think that it begs the question, where is the mercy then? Where's the mercy that we know will precede God's judgment? And that comes in no other than the person of Jesus. And I think that it's fair then to ask, okay, how does Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, how does Jesus free us from God's wrath. And I think that this is something many of us maybe hear so often that we just kind of tune out and we think we know it. But I want you to listen and maybe hear this with a fresh perspective uh, for these next few moments here. Because I want you to know that we're not set free from god's wrath simply because jesus was falsely accused and he was sentenced to death we're not set free from god's wrath because nails pierced his hands and feet and a crown of thorns crushed into his skull none of these things save us the things that we so often like to focus on when it comes to the crucifixion and the night before jesus's betrayal as he wept in the garden. So much so that he was sweating blood as he was agonizing over the events to come. I don't think he was simply just agonizing over a Roman nail or a Roman cross. There's many people throughout history who've died more painful and worse deaths than Jesus. In the the first century, there's records of Christians being strung up on crosses and then burnt alive. And while this was happening, they were singing praises to God. And do we think for a moment that they're more brave and more courageous than Jesus, who is here in the garden, weeping and agonizing over the things that are to come? Or could it be that what Jesus is so fearful of isn't actually so much the physical, but there's something far more at play? Because the wording he uses is very specific here in the garden, where he says, Father, take this cup from me. And that cup is not a Roman nail or a Roman cross, but we see it in the Old Testament again and again throughout the Psalms and in the book of Isaiah, where it talks about this cup as the wrath of God to be poured out against the world. In Jeremiah, it says the wine of the cup of God's wrath. And again, in Revelation, it talks about it. And what we see is that this cup is a clear picture of the wrath of God, which is to be poured out over the world. And what saves us from the wrath of God is not a crown of thorns. It's not a Roman cross, but it's that moment when Jesus was on the cross where the wrath of God was thrust onto him in full force. And in that moment, God, he had to turn away, not because he couldn't stand the sight of Roman soldiers persecuting his son, but because he couldn't stand the sight of our sin on his son. And you could, you could look at it like this. If you were standing in front of a dam, 50 meters in front of a dam, and that dam was a thousand kilometers high, a thousand kilometers wide, and in a moment it just cracked open and all that water was flooding straight towards you. And then at the last moment, the ground just opened up and it swallowed every last drop. And you were left there completely untouched. This is what happened on the cross. When Jesus was on the cross, he drank the cup of God's wrath. And when he had finished the last drop, he turned it over and he said the words, it is finished. That is the gospel that is the mercy of our god and you see that creates an opportunity that creates a choice for each and every one of us just like the canaanites and the people of nineveh where we now get to choose whether we repent and we turn away from evil when we turn to god or we can choose to neglect that choice, neglect, that opportunity for mercy. And here we have two very similar stories with two very different outcomes. For the people of Nineveh, their posture was one of repentance, one of turning to God. And we see forgiveness, we see grace, we see mercy. And for the Canaanites, they chose to neglect that opportunity. And because of that, We see wrath poured out over them. And I think to to deny that our God is a God of wrath is to deny the very existence of the cross, because that is the greatest demonstration we have of our God's anger and hatred towards sin. And equally, it is the greatest demonstration we have of his immense mercy for each and every one of us. That when we look to the cross, we don't see ourselves up there, but instead we see the only one that did not deserve wrath. We see Jesus, that God would put his son there instead of us. And that is the greatest demonstration of his love, his grace, and his mercy that we will ever see. That is the mercy that precedes his judgment. See, to understand the the wrath of our God, to gain a full perspective of it, I believe we need to understand these things. We need to understand the cross. And in doing so, we see that our God is far more a God of love and mercy than He is a God of wrath.